He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. Hey, welcome back to yet another episode of the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast with Dr. Philip Ovedia. We are joined today by the very first orthopedic surgeon I've ever met who wasn't trying to cut on me, Dr. Howard Lux. Phil, take it from here and tell us why this guy's on our show. Well, Jack, uh, we have found a, another surgeon who uh, is trying to keep people off his operating table as well. So I think it's uh, certainly going to be a great uh, guest and a great uh, contributor to the ongoing discussion that we've been having Um so uh, with that, I'm going to welcome Howard and uh, let him uh, give us a little bit of his background and introduce himself to our audience. And then we're going to get going with a pretty fascinating discussion. Thanks, gentlemen. Uh, so as you said, name is Howard Lux. I'm an orthopedic surgeon in New York. Uh, I've been a surgeon for 25 years. Um, been an athlete uh, for 45 to 50 years. Um, and, you know, with my training, the adaptations that were necessary to maintain my training level, I just started to see things change. And I just started to see changes in peers of my, of my age who weren't necessarily aging well. So I started to do a lot of investigating in my own research and writing on my website. And it became clear uh, that I was witnessing uh, a root cause that we were missing out on. And we were addressing diseases at the top level. We were missing the bottom level or the roots. Um, so I started to dive into that on my website. I found a lot of interest in those writings. So I decided to write a book about it. Uh, I believe that's how we met online. Yeah, and I uh, certainly uh, want to get into the book, uh, but I guess go into a little bit more sort of that journey as to how you, as an orthopedic surgeon, uh, recognized, you know, our failures to be addressing root cause. Because um, yeah, sure. without without getting too offensive, of course, the standard uh, perception of an orthopedic surgeon is, you know, hammer, nail, drill, don't don't really think about anything besides the broken bone or or uh, damaged uh, joint in front of you. Well, I'm glad I can break that mold. Um, you know, it became clear sitting across from from people throughout the day uh, on, on lisinopril, torvastatin, or resuvastatin, metformin, that I was seeing this big growth in metabolic disease um, and metabolic syndrome. And in researching that, it turns out there was a strong association with rotator cuff disorders, rotator cuff tears, with osteoarthritis. Um, and it became clear that poor metabolic health affects every one of our tissues in our body, right? I, um, I, hold on. I, I decided I wanna, that I wanted to... I, I got to ask you to repeat that because yeah. I heard something that I've never heard connected. Rotator cuff injuries? No. Um, So most people who present to an orthopedic surgeon's office with shoulder pain and are found to have a rotator cuff tear 
They don't have that tear or that pain because of an injury. They woke up with it. Or they I can relate. move their arm suddenly and their shoulder pain started. And if an MRI is obtained, you may find these small little rotator cuff tears. It's not that you actually tore it one day. It's simply that the tissue wore out or it degenerated. Okay. Is that an age-appropriate change? Is that an age-appropriate change accelerated by poor metabolic health and function? The answer is yes. It probably is in combination with poor metabolic health. Um, cholesterol deposition, uric acid deposition, lots of metabolic changes will cause deposits in our rotator cuff tendons, poor vascularity, and result in uh, <clears throat> tearing, fraying more easily than in people who are healthy. And and you have a specific definition of what that means to be healthy, I guess. All right. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that one was I hadn't heard that before. Okay, carry on. After um, I started to recognize these associations, uh, I started to write about it. I started to share them with people in my office, and that started to turn into um, a longer evaluation, a longer discussion, a more detailed discussion, and in many people, a much more uh, a much happier patient. Um, it turns out that we were able to affect people's lives uh, on a more general basis than their shoulder. As I was able to draw the associations between what was going on um, and why they were in my office, uh, as well as in their other doctor's offices for their hypertension, their, their cardiac disease, type 2 diabetes, etc. And I found that I was in a unique position um, to discuss metabolic health with them um, because I was seeing them quite quite frequently for their shoulder or knee-related issues. Um, and that launched into more writings and eventually a book. So uh, I realize this may not be an accurate assumption, but my assumption is that the bulk of the patients who are seeing an orthopedic surgeon are probably, especially one who specializes in sports medicine, as it says on your website, that you're seeing people who are pretty fit. And yet you're <laughs> describing that doesn't sound like you're seeing people who are pretty fit. Yeah. So fitness is very subjective, right? Um you can be active, you can be a runner, you can be a cyclist, uh, but you have a resting lactate of, you know, of 1.8, your LDL is 180, um, and you have other markers of concern. So, yes, I treat young students um, with uh, injuries, ACL tears, shoulder dislocations, Etc. But uh, many adults, interestingly enough, um, are in my office with pain, and I'll ask them if they were active in sports, and they're like, "Sure, I played football, baseball, maybe even some basketball." And when I ask when they last did it, it was in high school, so they remember their days of activity gone by and reflect upon them well. And in their mind, they're, they're still an athlete. Um, and this is somehow still a sports-related injury. And I assume, and, I assume it's not. Well, I, you know, 
half the people that I'm going to see with knee pain or shoulder pain might play tennis, might kite surf, might hike, you know, or jog or run. So they're associating their pain with an injury caused by their sport or activity of choice. But that's not necessarily the case in the end. And what kind of um, reception did you, you know, or do you get uh, from your colleagues, uh, you know, both in the ortho, both your fellow orthopedists, but also, you know, the family uh, medicine doctors who, uh, you know, you are now pointing out to them that, you know, the patient who's in front of you with an orthopedic issue really has a metabolic health issue. Um, what kind of, you know, how has that been received uh, as you've sort of interacted with the rest of the healthcare yeah. system? It's tricky. Um, as an orthopedist, I, I don't know any other orthopedists who focus on metabolic disease and concerns uh, as much as I do. Um, <clears throat> it certainly affects your RVUs <laughs> when you're uh, spending a long time seeing a patient with shoulder pain because you're trying to explain to them some strategies how they can avoid dying uh, an early death. Um, the uh, the primary care doctors, um, you know, I'm a private practitioner now. I left uh, my academic appointment and, and place of work of 20-something years over a year ago. Um, and every primary care practitioner in my area is nailed down by a large hospital system. So uh, I'm primarily a word-of-mouth practice, but there are a few primary care doctors left. Um, and I try to work with them. I try and call them about these patients. I try to touch base. You know, I may be planning uh, a knee replacement on someone, and their, and their A1C is 8.1. Uh, and they're only on 500 milligrams of metformin once a day. What does that um, mean for us for us non-doctors? So hemoglobin A1C is a means of determining uh, how well controlled your blood sugar is when you have diabetes. Um, A1C should be five or under, five and a half or under, um, even in a non-diabetic <clears throat> And your risk of complications, your risk of infection, your risk of failure of a joint replacement, issues with anesthesia um, go up dramatically as, as your A1C goes above 7. So we won't operate on anyone electively who has an A1C above 7. And what about the metformin? I've heard you mention that a couple of times. What's that so about? Metformin was one of the earlier medications used to, to treat early insulin resistance and uh, cheap blood sugar control. Um, there are other medications around, although it's still used by many. Um, okay. But there reaches a point where the disease becomes severe enough and well entrenched enough that people don't don't respond to it. Okay. All right. So the A1C is the marker of is a the marker that indicates uh, poor insulin receptivity, and the metformin is a way to help them treat that. Correct. Okay. And so, how often today would you say that you know someone comes to you and you know they're they're thinking they need a knee replacement, let's say, or a hip replacement, um, and basically they just need their metabolic health corrected, and um, you do so, and 
they're back in your office a few months later saying, I don't need the knee anymore. You know, my knee feels great now. Uh, and, and talk about how often do you see that today, knowing what you now know, versus how often that would have been the case, you know, 20 years ago uh, when you were, you know, sure. forgetting your practice. You know, I can have this talk about metabolic health with shoulder pain and knee pain patients all day long. Um, but if they can't sleep because of their shoulder pain, uh, they don't really care as much about the metabolic health issue right now as they do about their ability to sleep. And the metabolic health concerns and its effect on soft tissues, cartilage, and bone is really an issue that we need to conquer when people are young, before all these substances have had time to accumulate and uh, raise to a certain burden uh, within the soft tissues. So I will work hard to get people more comfortable. Obviously, we know that people with insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes uh, have a higher pain sensitivity and higher pain scores uh, versus people with with similar disease or, or changes in their shoulder, uh, and they don't have type 2 diabetes. So uh, we will employ strategies to get that pain diminished. Um, at the same time, we employ strategies to improve their metabolic health. I've had many strong wins in the office um, with people with mild to moderate osteoarthritis, um, where it's clear the inflammation is far more severe than the diseases uh, on x-rays or other imaging studies. Um, and with employing some, some traditional measures, su such as anti-inflammatories, and getting them on Vicepa, uh, if their triglycerides are high, um, dealing with getting their A1C down, we are able to control their inflammation uh, to a large degree. It's, it's been pretty surprising. And after a round or two of physical therapy, many are, are quite comfortable again. Ken, I, I want to follow up on what you just said about catching it when they're young before this, they've accumulated this load. That implies to me that the longer you remain in a state of ill metabolic health, that we're accumulating crap in our joints? Am I, did I understand well, that right? Yes and no. So metabolic disease, as we know, like heart disease and elevated ApoB or LDL or LP little a, um, these are area under the curve issues. So it's a time-dependent issue. The length of time that your artery walls have been exposed to elevated lipoproteins, um, ApoB lipoproteins, uh, and uh, elevated uric acid levels, etc. So it's the same thing for your soft tissues and for your joints. Okay. The longer that your tissues and joints are exposed to these um, to this disease burden, uh, to these metabolic issues, the uh, the larger the consequences. So the the damage is cumulative. Absolutely. The, um, and it accumulates slowly over time. To the vascular system I mean, and the Gerald soft Schulman. tissue. Okay. Say again? It cumulative to both the vascular system and the soft tissue of our bodies. 
Sure, and your brain and your cardiac system, etc. cetera. Um, look at the studies from Gerald Schulman out of Yale where he's finding evidence of, of insulin resistance in young, thin, non-active college-age students. Um, you know, that's alarming because if this is an AUC issue, an area under the curve issue, and it's starting that young, think about the consequences for that 20 years down the road when they're only 40, um, the risk of dementia, cardiac disease, various orthopedic conditions, um, diabetes, kidney failure, loss of eyesight. It, the list goes on and on. It's really striking. Yeah, you know, and this is something that we've uh, touched upon, you know. Obviously, you know, my focus ends up being on the uh, heart aspect, on the cardiac aspects of this. Um, but again, we now see that, you know, you can look at all these different disease processes that the healthcare system traditionally views as completely independent. Uh, you know, no one really right. links heart disease with, uh, you know, joint degeneration. Um, yet, you know, there is a common link between them. And then, like you said, you can then bring in, you know, the Alzheimer's and the kidney disease aspect of it and all of these things that end up going together. And I think, you know, for the healthcare system in general, for us as practitioners, we are going to have much greater successes if we can bring that all together. We can make, we can educate the patients about these common uh, root causes for all of these different conditions. And we can be much more successful in preventing and reversing these things, um, you know, as we focus on the underlying metabolic health issues. Absolutely. Um, and it, it actually informs the discussion and it makes it, makes it easier for people to understand, right? If they understand the concept of metabolic syndrome, and that they have one condition as opposed to four different diseases, then they can sit back and say, um, okay, I can handle this. I can handle fixing one problem as opposed to heart disease, um, dementia risk, hypertension, et cetera. That yeah, I'm sure is you, a brilliant you know, Probably a, heard during medical school, um, and I'm forgetting the name of the principal, uh, Jack, probably know it, that, um, you know, that if there's one explanation that can explain all of the problems that the patient's having, um, you know, that's much more likely to be the cause than four different, uh, you know, things that uh, lead to all these problems that uh, patients end up having. Absolutely correct. So let's talk about the new book, Longevity Simplified, Living a Longer, Healthier Life Shouldn't Be Complicated. Uh, love the title and uh, tell us a little bit more about what people are going to learn from that book. Yeah. Um, so the concept is that longevity advice can be simplified. There is a root cause uh, for many of the chronic diseases uh, that are going to come for us. I wanted to get across the concept that these diseases are area under the curve issues, that they are often interrelated um, and can complement or worsen each other's presence 
And I wanted to keep people out of rabbit holes, out of strict elimination diets, away from buying supplements that aren't going to work or sweating and throwing up on a Peloton. Um, so I wanted to provide them with really simple, actionable advice. Um, it's been clear in my career that most people don't like to exercise, right? For those of us who run and bike and participate in triathlons, fantastic. But we're one of, you know, we're one in 10, uh, one in five, perhaps. Most people view exercise as sweaty, painful, and obnoxious, and they just don't want to do it. Um, but they are willing to move more. They're willing to move often and occasionally with ferocious intent. Um, they don't need, in most instances, in instances to radically change their diet, but they can take in fewer simple carbs, more complex carbs, more, more satiating fats, etc. Um, and I put this writing together in a simple format to inform everyday folks like, like you and me of the simple strategies that are necessary to try and enable us to live a longer, healthier life, better health span, as, as I talk about. Ferocious intent. Yep. What's, what's that look like? <laughs> It for, depends. For the, you know, for the 90% for me, of us who are hard aren't. up a hill. Right. So for me, it's running up a hill really hard. For you know, for others, it, it may be doubling your pace with walking. It may be walking up four or five flights of stairs instead of two. Um, it's whatever you perceive to be a higher a higher threshold or a higher effort. How does this relate to the uh, the heart rate training theory that's gained currency over the last twenty years? Yeah, so um, it's it's low heart rate training or zone two training, uh, as it's called. We have different energy systems in our body. Our mitochondria, which provide the energy through ATP manufacturing or production, prefer to burn fat. They are more efficient when burning fat. They have a much higher store of energy as fat. We have an infinite amount of, it, of energy stored in our body if we could burn fat. We burn glucose through glycolysis as our effort increases as we leave zone two. So the upper end of zone two is called the first lactic acid threshold, or LT1. As you transition out of zone one and two and into zone three and above, you start to rely more and more on glycolysis. You'll create lactate. There's a hydrogen ion associated with that. It changes the acidity of the muscle environment, and it leads to being tired. With metabolic health, if your metabolic health is poor, if you're insulin resistant, you have very poor mitochondrial flexibility. Mitochondrial fle flexibility means that if you have good mitochondrial flexibility, you're able to burn fat at low efforts and you will switch over to glycolysis as the need arises. People with very poor mitochondrial flexibility those with poor metabolic health, type 2 diabetes, etc., 
they have very poor mitochondrial flexibility and they will start burning glucose as soon as they start walking. That can be manifested in blood tests by a blood lactate measurement. Hopefully, the average lactate is 0.81 at rest. And you can maintain that even with walking. And for some of us, even with jogging. I've tested pe- people in my office, and some will switch over uh, to glycolysis um, as soon as they get up from a table and start walking, where they yeah. come in with a resting, a resting lactate of two. Um, so, uh, and, and this, the underlying cause here is just poor metabolic health. Correct. And low heart rate training will stimulate your mind. You have to stimulate those mitochondria at a level that they're, that they're capable of functioning, uh, at with fat oxidation, i.e. burning fat. Um, and if you push too hard, um, you're going to go into glycolysis, which, you know, pushing really hard, many will, some will say and push back and say, look, you are stimulating mitochondrial biogenesis or the production of new mitochondria. But no, you, you need to exercise your heart at a low enough heart, heart, heart rate that you're not short of breath. You can still talk and converse in full sentences without having to stop and hold your breath uh, or catch your breath. Um, If you do measure lactate, your blood lactate is low. So you're burning fat. You're you're asking your muscles to produce more mitochondria, more blood flow or capillaries to the muscles, and you're building your metabolic health. So, I think I've got that. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. Do you um, routinely measure resting lactate levels in people? I actually have, yes. Not routinely um, because the strips are expensive. <laughs> right. But I've done it many times, especially if I want to nail home a point. Very interesting. And talk to us a little bit about, you know, longevity and – how you can you pause for a second? <laughs> yeah. Let me close my door. Huh. I don't think I've got a way to pause this recording. That's fascinating. Sorry about that. I'm not the best guest, I guess. No huh. problem. That's all right. Our yeah. hosting is sucked as well. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get through it together. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, the framework of longevity, because the problem in measuring or, or interventions targeted towards hu- longevity in humans is by the time you know the answer as to whether it worked or not, um, it's uh, a little bit too late. Uh, so how do you think of longevity and, you know, how do you tie day-to-day life uh, to the ultimate goal of longevity? Right. Um, I At this point, I like to rely on Uh, improving my health span or squaring off the lifespan curve. Um, I don't want to hit my 50s and start to decay. I don't want to be on four or five medications, all with their uh, side effects and risks. Um, I don't want to hit my 60s and beyond with frailty, with sarcopenia. Uh, And sarcopenia is age program muscle loss. So, Beginning at 
40, 38, you start to lose 1% to 3% of your muscle mass a year. Uh, you get a corresponding loss in muscle strength. Um, it's very hard to get that back, but it's very easy to prevent it, um, which is why I rely on, uh, on resistance training uh, a few times a week. So I want to be able to hit my later decades walking uh, erect, walking tall, um, being cognitively intact um, on as few medications as possible uh, with the lowest risk of uh, cardiac disease, dementia, type 2 diabetes, and so on. Um, you know, do I want to live to 120? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, perhaps if my kids do. But, um, yeah, it's hard to define longevity for me uh, any more than healthy aging. I think going to 100 is fine for me as long as I'm up and walking around like my dad playing tennis four days a week. I think that sounds wonderful. I got to tell you, you've excited the ex-athlete in me. Um, I quit playing basketball 20 years ago because for the, it, it, the pain was bigger than the pleasure. And every time I get out on a basketball court and put a ball in my hand, I'm reminded of that. But, um, to think about the reality that, that this pain in my knee and my ankle could just simply be excess inflammation. That's pretty darn exciting. Um, I would love to be able to, to do those kinds of things that I used to love doing and do them with less pain. So, um, I think that's a, and ferocious a, intent and ferocious intent. <laughs> Uh, so, um, real quickly talk to us, tell us, uh, uh, the, is the book available now? Yes. The book is available. Uh, all the normal places or all the normal places. All right. Um, give us the name of the book one more time. We'll make sure this shows up in the show notes. Longevity and simplified. Longevity simplified. That seems pretty straightforward. It Looking is forward pretty to it. straightforward. You know, it's interesting, the reactions to it. You know, I have, obviously, those who rely on more strict longevity protocols saying it's short on facts. Um, I have those who are interested in simpler advice, and the first advice to get them up out of the chair that they've received in 20 years, who are just loving it. So it, it's very interesting to get this back. Um, you know, as you know, Philip, it's not possible to read, a, to write a book for everyone. I yeah, like to tell my clients that there, there's 30% of the people who are going to hate you no matter what you do. So that's just life. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I, I feel anything else. I, no, just, uh, I, I, you know, I think people will certainly uh, look forward to getting the book. I think the simplification part of it um, is going to be a uh, key differentiator from a lot of what's out there uh, talking about longevity these days, because a lot of it gets pretty complicated pretty quickly. Great. And now I understand why Peter Atia came up. Yes. I get it. 
Okay. Very good, Howard. Uh, are there, uh, I guess, uh, give us some, uh, let the people know how they can uh, connect with you, how best to uh, contact you, and we'll make sure to get all that in the show notes as well. Yeah, so Twitter is my only social network, uh, H-J-L-U-K-S, and my website, of course, howardluxmd.com. Outstanding. Easy stuff. We'll get that on the website. Um, I have a stack of books so big, I really – I was on a call this morning, and um, it was kind of a get-to-know-you call, and they said, if you were on a desert island for 30 days, it could only take three things, what would it be? And my thought was – I could get all those books read that I'm, I'm wanting to read. <laughs> that sounds like heaven to me, 30 days alone on a desert island. So, but obviously I've got another book I'm going to have to put on the stack. All right. Well, if this, uh, this discussion of metabolic health and uh, maybe simplifying a better life l- lived longer has interested you, I'd encourage you listeners to go ahead and go to uh, Dr. Lux website and also go to philip ovadia's website ifixhearts.co take that metabolic health quiz and kind of put a number to where you're really at you can follow dr ovadia on twitter at ifixhearts and access his concierge medical service is it good is it okay to call it that yes it is telemedicine service Concierge concierge telemedicine um at ovadiahearthealth.com. Until next time, we'll see ya. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Ovadia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com dot com slash talk.